Chris McLeish here, our episode number 48. 48. Well, we're a state. We are indeed today. Yes. <laughs> we just discussed how we're both feeling a little bit rotten. We're a little bit rough at the present. It just That's like okay. normal everyday things, not like pandemic y things. Uh, no. So fear, no, no, no. fear ye not. No, we were just talking about how this morning I woke up severely dehydrated because I didn't drink <laughs> enough in work yesterday. And yeah, it was not a good look this morning as I was literally crawling down the stairs to get a pint of water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. We're just, we're, yeah, we're falling apart a bit this week, I feel. We are. I have a swollen eye. It's very red. <laughs> it's a. Uh... It is it's such a shame, your little sore eye. Like I'm, I'm winking at everyone. Although I was saying yesterday to Matt that I felt we were driving somewhere and I was like, the world, for some reason, just looks super HD today. It probably was the sun, but maybe <laughs> the pressure of my swollen left eye made my vision better. I don't know. Hey, who knows? Maybe that's your secret superpower you don't know about. Yeah. So if ever I want to see things in super high quality... I have to smash myself in the face so I get a swollen eye. <laughs> could work. Could work, but wouldn't recommend on the daily somehow. I could see that no. ending terribly. I'll save it for special occasions then. Yeah, not good. Yeah. But apart from the swollen eye and the severe dehydration, how you doing? <laughs> oh, I am good. We, the two of us, saw each other. <gasps> we did, literally a week ago today. Yes, a week a week ago today. That doesn't yeah, feel like a week. Yeah, last Thursday. That's crazy. That's mad. Uh, well, wait. Today's Thursday. Good Today lord. Today is Thursday. Yeah. This week has this week has escaped me. <laughs> yeah. So I, we we met up and we had a very nice time. We did all sorts of bits and bobs. Oh, it was a delightful time. Can I just say yes. it was also the first time in a very long time I'd actually seen you in person, which is exciting. Yes. And. Can we just talk about the fact that Trixie loves me now? Yeah, this is see that you've made real good progress. <sighs> oh no! <laughs> Car alarm. <laughs> um, yeah. So, as we pals of the pod, you know that mm-hmm. Trixie is is an aloof little feline be- being. She's yes. very picky about who she gives her her affections to, and even when I can't sit for you. Cat sit, mm-hmm. cat sat. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> for you. It will. It will soon become plural. I'm sure. Yes. Um, when I woke up at like four o'clock in the morning, Finn was lying across my throat, and Trixie was sitting at the bottom of the bed in a loaf, looking at me, going, mm-hmm. "You're not Chris. Who are you, stranger?" <laughs> um, and was it a bit more standoffish, which is fair. But yet, when I came over, she was lying on top of her little perch. Um, her little thing that you call the thing that I can't remember the name of. <laughs> Cat tree. <laughs> Cat tree, thank you. <laughs> she was sitting on top, so I went over and I gave her a pat and she went all like roly-poly into my hand and then she gave me a kiss. <laughs> yeah. I was oh. like, I'm friends with her now. I've been accepted. <laughs> yeah, she's... Uh, she currently is sitting on very the very same perch of oh. which you speak, but she is she does have. I would I wouldn't say she's antisocial. I would say that she's shy and she just yeah. takes a little while to kind of 
get so on board to, with people. She has to warm up, which is fair yeah. enough. As which do is we. Fair. <laughs> Occasionally. Yeah, I mean, yes. <laughs> As do we all. I don't just kiss any stranger. She takes a little while, but once you get there, it's a nice feeling because it feels... I mean, Finn's just a little sook, so... He, yeah, oh, he absolutely is. He does, he everyone's loves the attention. Everyone's a winner with him. Oh, he yes. loves the attention, so... The fact that Trixie was willing to give me a little kiss, I was like, oh my god, yeah. you've accepted me. You know who I am now. <laughs> <laughs> but we had we, we did lots of other nice things. We we baked cookies with my new whisk. Oh. Very exciting. McLeish, your new whisk, it really is a revelation to the baking industry, can I just say? It really is. So it turns on like a hairdryer. And it's essentially, a bit loud. <laughs> it's a bit loud. It's got seven speeds. Who needs seven speeds? I know. My old whisk had three. It's true. Yeah, I've upped the ante. I've got seven now. Seven. And it, but it heats up. So if you have butter that's not room temperature, yes, you can make it room temperature as you're creaming it with the sugar. Yep. This is the twenty first century, ladies and gentlemen. It really is. You know how in like Back to the Future. When they like imagined 2015, bet you they didn't include heated whisks in that. They absolutely didn't. They also didn't talk about a pandemic five years later. They also didn't. They left that little bit out inconveniently. That would have been would have been beneficial. I know heads up would have been nice. <laughs> yes, just give us a wee shout, and we could have all we could have isolated before it even became a problem. Exactly. You live and you learn. We made cookies. They were very good cookies, I have to they say. They were very good cookies. Bake off, eat your heart out. But they were like, because they were more like cakey cookies, which I quite mm-hmm. like. Okay. And they were really mm-hmm. soft and nice and sweet. Oh, yes. They were, they were some very good. good. Sugar. And then can I just say that McLeish introduced me to the wonder that is a strategic board game. Yes. Have you ever played a strategic board game before? I had not. Oh. I don't think you can count snakes and ladders as a strategic board game. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a lot of chance involved with uh, exactly. snakes and ladders. We absolutely need to get you around for a proper board game night. Oh. And we just play a couple of board games. I am buzzed at the thought. I legit think I might have found like a new love. Because I was really panicked. Okay, it helped that the game was fully up my street. <laughs> Yes, I mean it was. It was called. It's called horrified. It is essentially all of the universal, old universal horror movie characters, like mm-hmm. Frankenstein, Creature of the Blue Lagoon, The Invisible Man, those kinds of peeps. Yeah, you do know it's the Black Lagoon, right? Blue Lagoon's a chippy in Glasgow. That's it. That's it. <laughs> I always say Blue Lagoon. I've been enough. saying that every time I've played it. Even reading the instructions, I've probably been like, "So the creature of the Blue Lagoon." <laughs> Well, to be honest though, on a Saturday night, there probably are some creatures in the Blue Lagoon outside Central. Let's not lie here. This is what I'm talking about. I've come up with a a Glasgow adaptation. Exactly. It's waiting to happen. But yeah, and you have to like do tasks and find objects to like fight against them. And I was really worried because I was like, oh, because I always, I'm one of these people that's always like strategic board games. There's going to be like loads of rules and you can't do this and you can do this and you can only do this at a certain point and I was going to be like ah too many things Mm -hmm. but actually once you'd done like a couple of turns I was like I get it 
Yeah. And then once you've got it, I was like, okay, we're going to beat Dracula here. And it was so much <laughs> fun. Like every single time that <laughs> one of the monsters would like come into like our area we started to get like really enthusiastic oh my god it was <laughs> such a good time of course i cannot wait for the it's, next one <laughs> yeah we will absolutely have like a proper board game night where we introduce you to a couple of others that i think you will really like it's like there's there's so many board games out and around that are yeah. not as difficult as you'd think they would be and it's not about yeah. difficulty but as convoluted and rule heavy yeah there are so many like really really good board games with amazing themes that are actually fundamentally quite simple but yeah that's the kind of games that i like i don't really like the ones that are super convoluted because i don't have the attention span fair enough enough. (laughs) yeah but thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed myself yeah Um, it was it was like great fun and it was just so it was so i never thought i'd get so into a piece of plastic chasing after me <laughs> on a cardboard board but i was like I'm you haven't it lived was, it was great fun so thank yeah. you very very much because i feel like You're i so found welcome. like a new a new love which is something i felt like i needed in my life at the minute so honestly yes i had a great time the other thing we did is we discussed a semi-secret project we that we are discuss- wanting to uh yeah to do we did which is going to remain semi-secret for the present it uh, will it's only semi-secret because we've told you now <laughs> yes you know pals but yeah we do have a semi-secret project on the works which is very very exciting yes and we would we hope that it comes to fruition and when it does that people will enjoy yeah that's a that's very good way say. of putting it that yeah. that was good. That was that was good marketing right there. Thank you. The only I suppose the only so when I was at yours, mm-hmm. uh, so we had the Scottish Ballet at mm-hmm. the theatre this weekend, reopening after eighteen months, which is lovely for them. There can be lots of ballet dancers with stiff legs. There is yes. <laughs> it was a one act ballet that had been created by Jean Kelly and my mum and my brother. Went to see it when I was over at yours. This uh, they is actually true. went to see it. And they were sitting, it was either behind or next to Gene Kelly's widow. Oh. Which is very cool. That's nice. Yeah. Was she just over, was she, does, I assume she lives in America on the Yeah, road. I think she was there. Was it, because that was the first time the work had been performed in Europe. Oh, that's nice. And she kind of like um, helps keep his legacy going kind of thing because I believe she was significantly younger than him. Or she is significantly younger. She's still going, so... Well, yeah. (laughs) Sounds likely. (laughs) Um, But yeah, she kind of like keeps his work alive and is very passionate about keeping his legacy going. Um, So yeah, she came over to see it because my mum said she came in and like... As you can imagine, like full evening dress, yeah. which sometimes on a Thursday night at the theatre, it would look quite out of place. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You don't often get people in full evening dress um, at the Royal, so. Uh, but yeah, apparently she was very nice and was like happily talking to little, your average Glasgow human round about her, which was very cool. So. That's so sweet. Yeah, that was really cool to hear. Well, without further we... ado. Dip on into the hat. Dip on into the hat. I see you took it further. I I can never just let it lie. 
I have to always elevate. That's fair. Okay, now, this is a question we have inadvertently answered before. It's not been a hat question, but it was a very long time ago. Tell us about an onstage mishap. Oh! Now, McLeish has lots of good ones. I'm going to have to rack my brains because I'm not... I have not been involved with onstage mishaps, but I have been the cause of a couple. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, I actually might kick things off with one that is not my own. Oh, go for it. Absolutely go for it. So, before I was Sweeney Todd, I had gone to see some friends of mine, including Rosie Graham, actually, in a production of Sweeney Todd. Mm-hmm. We love Rosie Graham on the pod. She doesn't listen, so she doesn't know we love her. <laughs> um, but if ever she does, how you doing, Rose? No, how we you love doing? you. We love you. Um, so I went to see this production, but I was in another show with people from that production of Sweeney Todd that I went to mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. And one day there was this guy who was in the cast who played an ensemble member, came into Brave Macbeth rehearsals and had a line across his throat and I was like what happened what happened here what's this about turns out in rehearsals for Sweeney Todd they had a non-blunted razor (gasps) that was to be blunted but it had not yet been blunted and had been used in rehearsals by accident and so when the Sweeney went to pretend to slit his throat and didn't like press because I mean you would never actually press just in case but just oh. a, just a kind of sliding it across the throat gently did actually cut this guy's throat Oh my and so God. he then came to Brave at Beth rehearsals with a line where the Sweeney Todd essentially almost massacred him <laughs> yeah Yes, yeah. Luckily, that was also just a rehearsal. It wasn't an actual performance. No, but still, that's that was that's one hell of a mishap. <laughs> yeah, not good. That's a near fatal mishap. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it could have ended <laughs> in a much worse way. It could have yeah. been much, much, much worse. Oh my god! In terms of my own injuries, I th- I can only think of one injury that I've had on stage, potentially. No, that's not true. I can think of a few. But there was one that I had where I was playing um, one of a collection of dafties in a pantomime. Mm-hmm. There was four of us were playing the, the kind of idiots. And we were painters and decorators. So Classic. there was ladder, brush, gaffer, and tub or something like that. It was four names that were all kind of to do with decorating. Tub. And I mean, the only reason I remember that is because it was LGBT. And I was like, wow! Unintentional, but it was LGBT. I played ladder because of my lengthy limbs. And we did a lot of farcing around. We were supposed Mm -hmm. to be painting and decorating, Mm -hmm. and it was all just a big farce. There was ladders swinging and almost hitting people and all that kind of stuff. The classic, the classic. Classic stuff. And at one point, I was getting hit in the face with a paintbrush. Okay. It was in somebody's hand. It wasn't just thrown at me. That's so it fair. was controlled. But there was one performance where they went a bit too too into it and they smacked yeah, me in the vicious. nose. They they smacked me in the nose and it started to bleed heavily 
Oh. And I was on stage for a good 10 minutes with a heavy, heavy <laughs> nosebleed. And luckily we had foam, like shaving foam, uh-huh. that was supposed to be used as our, as our wallpaper paste. Yep. And so I was shoving, like slyly shoving um, shaving foam <laughs> up my nose to try and stop it from bleeding. And then the director the next day had the blink and cheek to be like, Chris, you seemed really distracted yesterday during the farce. And I was like, yes, because my nose was bleeding. And he was like, yeah, we'll try not to get distracted today. And I was like, I had a bleeding nose. Of course I was distracted. Oh my God. I don't intend on having it happen again. Yeah, and I don't I was think not kids. Happy. Uh, yeah, I think kids would have been slightly traumatized should you have been like bleeding profusely all over bleeding. your costume and face. Exactly. Goodness oh, me. That's so I was funny. not very impressed by that note. So obviously because I be not on stage myself, but I have been the inadvertent cause <laughs> okay. of a couple of mishaps. So uh, they're both from the opera world, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first one was I was stage managing a production of Rigoletto. Jasmine, if you're listening, you know what I'm going to talk about here. One of our listeners was my ASM on said show. And we, there was a, it was, it was just, it was a very short rehearsal week. Very intense. So we were kind of like trying to pick up stuff as quickly as we could as we got. And everything went well. And then we got to the last show. And there's the, in the final act, this kind of like, I don't really know what to call her. You're kind of like stereotypical opera sexy lady. <laughs> I don't know what to yeah. call her. Because she, she wasn't a sex worker. That's not what she is. But just, you're kind of like classic opera stereotype. Kind of like comes in and is set in a bar and she lounges over the bar on this stool to like do her little sing song with the guy with an assassin as one does and got on the first act, the act started I was sitting in prompt corner and the singer comes up to me and goes where's the bar stool so in our changeover of scenes we had forgotten quite a key piece of set because our brains were mush mm-hmm. <laughs> by that point yep. so I was like ah so then your brain goes into overdrive and you're like, is there a very clever way in which we can try and get this stool on set? But unfortunately, there just wasn't like the way the set was because it was very exposed. And I was like, no, we're going to. So that happened. And then also a piece of set fell off, <laughs> nearly concussed a singer, mm-hmm. which was great fun as well. But one of my personal favorites was um, I went, I did a tour of a production of La Traviata favourite opera, it's a great time and in the second the second scene of act two there's a very crucial important scene that takes place over a poker game between the Baron and Alfredo who are kind of like vying for Violetta the titular Traviata's love and it's very crucial and they're kind of like throwing insults and throwing shade across this table, across this very important card game. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Opening night, we'd had our dress rehearsal the evening before. Opening night, uh, again, we were all very new to the production. Uh, there was like three of us that were like directing, conducting it. But 
also had to do stage management like on the night and in our changeover of the set I had forgot to put the carts on the table <laughs> oh, no. I'd forgot to put I forgot to put the playing cards on the table so I was like oh god okay what we're gonna do and then I couldn't find the cards so I'd picked the cards up out of their place on the table but I didn't know what I'd done with them because I was like I, I, I could give them to someone else that's still to go on couldn't find the cards and Christian if you ever hear this god bless him I was playing the dealer and he's like I don't he was like, I don't know what to do because he's gonna have to deal imaginary cards so he was like there's this whole section when like there was like a very lengthy shuffle that went on while these two guys were like eyeing each other up across the table and Christian kind of like shuffled them beneath the table but it ended up looking like something really salacious <laughs> <laughs> What a twist. Shuffling these imaginary cards. Oh, so yeah. Kids, stage managers out there, remember where you put down your props when you're doing your scene yeah. changes because if they're very key, it can go terribly wrong. <laughs> but it's funny now, but at the time I was like, where did I put those flipping cards? <laughs> Turns out I dropped them on the floor backstage. So Excellent, too. Opera's more fun than you may think. Yeah, sorry. That can be. Brave Macbeth is a show that I've spoken about a few times before because I have done it for of a course, very long yeah. time. It's a good one. Um, it's, it's really good, good fun. And it's the kind of show that we are all so comfortable with it now because it's been the same cast for quite a while that yeah. we can yeah. m- not mess about, but we, I mean, we do. We fully mess about. And we That's try. you're allowed. We try to do things to make each other laugh as much as possible. So, mm-hmm. I mean, an example of that is I have a bit where I have to... We decided to throw in some audience interaction one day out of nowhere, my friend Scott and I. Mm -hmm. And so we're supposed to come up with a name for Macbeth because we can't say his actual name because it's bad luck. And so he's like, well, Mm -hmm. what should we call him? And then I would just be like, oh, Steve. Something like that. Something um, silly like that. So then we thought, well, let's do audience participation and ask an audience member what their name is. And then Mm -hmm. we can ask if we can borrow it. So I'd then be like, hi, sorry, what's your name? And then we would take their name, try throwing that in. Yeah. And then we, we I like that. Yeah, it was fun. We did that a few times. Like and then it kind of it kept <clears throat> growing and growing and growing until we would then say, Oh, that name's rubbish, we can't use that. It's, he doesn't suit that name. So I'd then try and yeah. come up with something to make Scott laugh. So one of the ones I came up with, Morag the Torag. And so he was like, <laughs> What should we call him? And I was like, Ooh, Morag the Torag. And then the two of us were on stage for a solid like three minutes. <laughs> not able to contain ourselves it doesn't sound that <laughs> funny out of context but at the time it was just i was like what can i say that would make scott laugh and morag the torag was one of the ones no but it's true though because when stuff does go wrong on stage it's because you know you can't laugh that it just becomes funnier totally totally like, the stupidest little things just become funnier because you know you can't acknowledge that something <laughs> stupid has really happened <laughs> Uh, it's like there's another scene during the banquet where Macbeth sees Banquo. I just randomly decided one day there was a violin sitting. So I picked up the violin and decided to storm the stage and be in the background playing the violin during the scene with Banquo. <laughs> and it, 
Like we would just do that kind of stuff to try and make each other laugh as much as possible. And it's funny because those kinds of things then stick and they become a part of the show. That's kind of how the show keeps keeps interesting for us. But also in the scene with Banquo is Macbeth removes a cloche and it's Banquo's head. Mm -hmm. And he's like, wah! And then sings a little song at him, slams the, the the cloche back down. And then when Lady Macbeth is like, oh, stop being an idiot. It's just, it's, it is but yeah. a haggis. She then lifts the cloche and it's a haggis. And then she's like, that's yeah. all it is. What, what's wrong with you? And so that's kind of how the scene goes. But then eventually the Lady Macbeth would start putting in different things to try and make the Macbeth laugh. So she would put a Big Mac. And so she'd be like, it is but a, Mac, it is but a Big Mac and reveal a Big Mac. <laughs> and then there was one day that she did a pan au chocolat and so she's like it is but a pan au chocolat and then <laughs> at the very end of the show the day that she did the pan au chocolat she brought it on stage and she was just in the background eating the pan au chocolat on stage oh i love that that's so it was funny, funny. i mean at this point she's dead as well so spoilers yes and <laughs> At the very, very end when Macbeth dies, we all throw things at him to be like, oh, shut up, Macbeth, stop doing your soliloquies, you're dead, mm-hmm. just die. And she went to yeah. throw the pan au chocolat at Macbeth and missed and smacked an old... <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, she smacked an old woman in the front row square in the face with the pan au chocolat. <laughs> Oh, it was so good. Oh, it was so funny. And then we were all on stage like... It was so good. Well, that old woman got her money's worth of that show. She got a free pan au chocolat right in the chops. It was so funny. Oh, anyway, that was one of my favourite mishaps. It took a long long time for me to lead to that one, but it it still makes me crack up. It was so funny. Oh, that's hysterical. (laughs) Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Oh, I do love a good on-stage ah, mishap. So funny. Not when I've caused it, but no. you know, <laughs> same difference. I mean, there's been so many. I honestly uh, countless. If anyone out there has li- is listening and knows of an on-stage mishap that has happened in my presence, please remind me because I love them. They are so funny. Yeah, oh. it's so much fun. <clears throat> and I know it's not an on- I know it's not an on-stage mishap, but the story about you getting trapped under a wheelchair. Mm. whilst playing the beast is one of my personal <laughs> favorites <laughs> oh it's so funny um so have i have i told this on the podcast before i don't know i don't know if you did like it was literally like episode seven or something okay. like that we spoke about this so for those of you who haven't heard this story before i was playing the beast in the panto beauty the beast and there was a point where i was in the dressing room with Belle and the dame and there was a couple of us backstage and I was sitting in a wheelie chair and Belle and I were just about to go on stage. So we were like, oh, well, let's get ourselves together to come up and go on for for the post ballroom scene. So I'm still yeah. in my floor length cloak, which is it was the most beautiful thing I've ever had on my person. Yeah, it was stunning. stunning. Yeah. And Belle was in her big, massive yellow ball gown. And I rolled backwards on the wheelie chair and toppled <laughs> backwards. And I didn't feel a thing because I was I was in the biggest costume I've ever had. It was so comfortable. I don't know why, but it just feels it feels funny because you're so lanky, and I can just kind of like see all <laughs> all my all limbs, the limbs going simultaneously. <laughs> and then because Belle had such a huge ball going on, she couldn't get close enough to pick me up. So then I was rolling around on the floor, trapped in my massive costume. <laughs> 
on a on a wheelie chair with a with Belle trying, trying to pick me up, and the two of us could not contain ourselves, and nobody else could get round to help me either. So it was just me flapping oh. about on the floor with Belle trying her best to help me, and we were creasing ourselves, and we had to then go on stage with tears in our eyes because we'd just been. Like, we made it on stage in time, so everything was okay. But it was the frantic energy for about oh, a minute God. of being like, help, I can't go. It was so funny. <laughs> oh, I love it. It makes me laugh so much. Oh, oh God. Good times. I miss performing. Oh, dear. <sighs> Who's ever working a theatre? <laughs> it's such a dangerous oh. game. It really, uh. honestly, it's so much can go wrong. Oh, oh, Jesus. So good. Well, shall we change the tone and uh we probably should we're about to get a little bit dark here after all the hilarity of on stage nonsense oh, and God. am i right um, in saying that you are first this week i think you are right in saying oh. that dear um, nice so i shall down the last of my lukewarm tea and get started it is the end of the 1810s and english poet william blake publishes a new work oh. it's all go all go so, Milton, A Poem in Two Books, is an epic poem that was composed and illustrated between 1804 and 1810. It concerns poet John Milton returning to Earth to explore the relationship between contemporary writers and those that have gone before him. So, Milton is perhaps best known for epic poem, Paradise Lost, a 1667 work that concerns the fall of man. The poem, in turn, has cropped up in various other literary works, perhaps most famously in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. 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 So many may not be familiar with this particular Blake title, myself included. I had never heard of it. But the preface has arguably transcended its original position. Taking its name from the line of the first line of the work, and did those feet in ancient time, the poem is more commonly known today as Jerusalem. Oh, I'm familiar with the with the, I'm familiar with the WI song and I'm familiar with the place. Great. Don't know that I know the poem. <laughs> oh god, that's all right. So Blake ponders the supposed visit of Jesus and Joseph of Joseph of Arimathea to Glastonbury in this work. Um, <laughs> did you not know that was a thing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. He went to a festival. <laughs> Woo! That is a great thought, though. Oh, why has no one ever taken? Why has no one ever thought of dressing up as that to go to Glastonbury? That'd make an excellent like alternative art photo. True. Oh, I mean, God. I'm sure if we investigated, there's some someone somewhere. Someone will have done that. Someone will have done that. Yeah. Um, so the poem implies that at a time, a uh, heaven, quote unquote, was or could have been created in England. One that in 1805 was slowly, slowly being claimed by, quote, those dark satanic mills. Aha. Yes. Throughout the late 18th and into the 19th century, the landscape of Britain was rapidly changing as chimney stacks rose over the once pastoral land, bringing with them the machines of metal and steam. The Industrial Revolution had the country firmly within the grip of her iron claw. Now, Ooh. thank you very much. You can that hire was me. Nice. Thank you. See, four years of uni paid off. <laughs> <laughs> 
So now, it seems generally accepted that the Scottish Industrial Revolution started a little later than England, but it was concentrated into like a much smaller timescale. So it like caught up very mm -hmm. quickly. This meant change was more drastic, more rapid, and arguably a little more violent. Many major heavy industries were situated in 19th century Scotland, including coal mining, iron and steel works, shipbuilding, and textile mills. Grim These places. industries, they are, they were not fun places to be. These industries flourished, leading to an influx of people to the major cities of the country. And as these jobs were often poorly paid, what followed was overcrowding, slum housing, and a rapid decline in public health. And on top of having to deal with the generally awful conditions out of work, those that found themselves working at the height of the Industrial Revolution found themselves in highly dangerous jobs. One must remember that this is in the days before health and safety laws or any explicit laws that forbade children from working in such environments. Workers yep. were more often than not in jobs that could have life-changing, if not fatal, consequences. Hence why they've made it to the pod. <laughs> yes. At a time, Glasgow was referred to by some as the second city of the empire. So it was okay. known as a hub for the trading and materials for three major exports, sugar, tobacco, and cotton. And what did all these industries have in common, Chris? Slaves. Absolutely. So, yes. all, well done. All of them relied on slave labor as all these materials were being shipped over from America before onwards to other claimed British land. I'm not calling it the empire because it was nasty. Yeah, yeah. It's like I don't, it's I don't love. Yeah, it was a nasty. The only kind of time. empire I can get on board with is an empire biscuit. Absolutely, everybody loves an empire biscuit. Yeah, and there's no like pillaging of land involved in making an empire biscuit. So true. I would like to know why it's called that though, just in case. That's a good point. I never thought about that. I might have to investigate that once we've finished recording. <laughs> Although Fair. we, for a long, long time, called them German biscuits. Oh, maybe it comes from that then, rather than... I don't know. Yeah, I, I remember uh, we called them German biscuits for a very long time and then all of a sudden realised that no one else did. So mm. I was like, why is this? So I'm going to have to do some research into the history of the Empire Biscuit. <laughs> Who knew that's where this is going to take us today? Return for next week's episode where I will yeah. discuss. <laughs> <laughs> so in turn, the cotton industry boomed in Scotland and by 1839, there was 192 mills in operation. So generally, cotton came financially cheap as <clears throat> the raw materials were being picked by slaves on the American plantations. And once it arrived here, it was spun and woven in mills by individuals that were incredibly poorly paid. So, yeah. if you're running... Yeah, slaves. literally everyone that wasn't like one of the top people was being exploited in one way yeah. or another. And it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Yeah. So until the Industrial Revolution, weavers in Scotland were considered artisan workers. And we'll have you know. Ooh. Yes. As they were highly, highly skilled at their craft. Weaving was a very <laughs> tricky, intricate skill. 
But with this new fancy invention of mass production, why does one need a highly skilled worker? Oh, yes. So how could weavers working by hand and at home compete with a power-operated mill and hundreds of people working simultaneously in the one space? So basically, this is the start of independent workers being, like, smashed by corporations. Mm. It's bad. Many mills were situated in Glasgow and the surrounding areas, and mill buildings are actually still present in the town of Paisley, which was an area that was effectively built on the weaving industry. Yes, there's but a lot I'll of... Just see episode 20, where Jennifer Lindsay talks about the Bergaran witches and Absolutely. the beginning of, essentially... What became what Paisley's known for? Yeah, absolutely. So mills operated using the factory system, as this was seen as the optimum way to ensure a high output of work, placing workers, and where required, disciplining them. Mm. So, <laughs> angry, angry grunt, angry grunt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> workers were a mere commodity to mill owners as they were easily disposable, as there was always a queue of people outside waiting to take a vacant place. The search for labour was not ever, like, didn't ever stop. There was always people that were willing and waiting to come in. Often the workforce would be controlled through the employment of managers or foremen and their responsibilities, including quality control of the materials made and the hiring and firing of staff. Now... Also remember that this is an era where more often than not, children would be financially required to work from an incredibly early age. Mm -hmm. The passing of a parliamentary bill in 1825 sets the legal minimum age for child workers in factories at nine years old. That's so young. That's so nine. Young. That's going to be That's like horrendous. Thea in seven years and she could have I been know. in a mill. That's so grim. I was still watching Teletubbies at that age. <laughs> well, maybe not the Teletubbies, but the tweenies. Oh. Yeah, like, come on. You can't, you can't imagine a nine-year-old being sent to what... It's just crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So in 1833, the Factory Commission interviews mill owners and managers in Calton in Glasgow. All state that the mill abides by the law when it comes to the employment of children. But does it? It was common knowledge in this mill that workers would often bring their children with them to assist in their work. These individuals were not on the books and therefore not being paid. So technically, the mill was not employing children. Mm -hmm. Corporations loopholing? Surely what the not. Heck? Surely I've never not. Heard of such a thing. I know. Cutting corners, not telling the truth. That never happens nowadays. Never. Never. So, unsurprisingly, because this is the Victorian era we're talking about here, children would be routinely punished in mills if unable to keep up with adult quote unquote work. So any of like the really kind of like big physical jobs however mm -hmm. 
there was one job in cotton mills that only children were highly adept at being suitable for. And this was to work as a scavenger. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? I know where you're going and it's making me nervous. <laughs> yeah. In the workroom, a spinning mule, which just makes me think of a horse ch- chasing its tail. <laughs> <laughs> And it would be used to spin cotton. This complex, incredibly heavy machinery moves backwards and forwards whilst spinning yarn. I saw, I looked up a video of this because I couldn't, from the description, I couldn't understand what it was talking about. And it's possibly one of the most scariest pieces of machinery I've ever seen and heard in my life. It was terrifying. Um... Mm -hmm. So the nature of the material and the machinery used often meant that cotton, oil, and dust would gather beneath the mule. And what's the best way of clearing that out, do you think? Sending a child on to pig and... Absolutely. Let's just send a child in underneath the machine, why don't we? So these scavengers, also known as mule scavengers, would be sent in to crawl into the area beneath to clean it out. As it operated. Mm-hmm. As it operated. Still moving at the time, people. So tenters would often be paid based on the amount of material they produced. So they wouldn't stop the machinery to allow these children to crawl underneath it because they couldn't risk not making their quota. So unsurprisingly, these children were often exposed to a high risk of accidents occurring. Let's think about it. Victorian Mill. Almost all machinery is exposed in this era. There's no protective casings. There's no hard hats, no protective gloves. This machinery is also incredibly loud, heavy, and fast moving. Children that worked as scavengers were often at high risk of, and did, break their fingers and limbs, or in the most extreme circumstances, lose them completely. Yep. They also ran the risk of having their hair being pulled out by being caught in the machinery or in, like, the complete craziest of circumstances. There was every opportunity that if they got a little too close, they would be scalped completely. (coughs) And, of course, because you're moving beneath something that's moving overhead, head being the operative word, there was also every possibility that a decapitation could occur. Oh, I hate it. A record at the Quarry Bank Mill, which is in Cheshire, tells a story of one such event. Mm. Now, folks, this is a little bit graphic, so if you don't want to, if you're not about the decapitations, just skip the next, like, 30 seconds to a minute. So the record goes, and I quote, On the 6th of March, 1865, a very melancholy accident befell a lad named Joseph Fodden, about 13 years of age. While engaged, sweeping under a mule, his head was caught between the roller beam and the carriage as the latter was pulling up and completely smashed. Death being almost instantaneous. Which is awful it's the most awful thing yeah to think about 
what these these kids were le- legitimately risking their lives in the workplace mm-hmm. to do this job you just you can't yeah. reconcile that fact like as a 21st century human what these kids were doing on like yeah i mean each day. i get nervous watching children go up and down climbing frames by themselves exactly because i'm like oh they might fall and hurt their knee i don't know how our parents must have been absolutely beside themselves although i suppose life in general was slightly more more difficult more it would be what they kind of it was normal yeah you, i mean that's yeah what I'm trying to say. exactly yeah but still like parents must have been absolutely beside yeah themselves. it must have been awful um and a gentleman called robert blinko also writes in his memoirs he wrote a memoir about working in a cotton mill right. uh, that he was almost crushed and was often injured by the machinery but he would still be beaten whenever he failed to clean properly beneath the mule even though he'd almost been like killed by it and he also lost half of his finger whilst working in this job ouch it's awful but remember conditions wouldn't have been any better for the adult workforce either Improper ventilation would lead to the inhalation of cotton fibres, which would often lead to respiratory problems, and occasionally these would be fatal. And there was also just the incredibly loud, heavy machinery that they were exposed to also. But in 1901, you will be pleased to know that the minimum working age for heavy industry factories when it concerned children was raised to 12. Oh, Oh, what a relief. Those three years just make excellent. all the difference, you know. You know. Yes, they've they've passed from childhood to adulthood by that point. Yeah, exactly. So, so there you go. Essentially. However, yeah. there was one mill in Scotland that was a little different to the satanic ones that Blake mused upon, and actually, it was designed to be a little more like a utopia that Blake pondered upon. Okay. Do you know what I'm going to talk about here? No. That's okay, because you looked so. like you did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I was intrigued. It was uh, a face of intrigue. That's okay. So the new Lanark cotton mills were founded in... There you go. See? Nailed it. I know it. I know it. What a place. <laughs> were founded in 1786 by David Dale, who was born 1739 and died 1806. And he's actually buried in Ramshorn Cemetery... Where Mr. Longelli is in an unmarked grave. Pals. Yeah, I know. Maybe the same grave, you never know. Who knows? Stacked and stacked. Who knows? It's like a game of Jenga. And these mills actually utilised water power machinery. So if you ever go there, because you can, um, it's next to like running water. So in the early 1800s, he sold the mills, land and houses to his son-in-law, Robert Owen. And Owen was actually something of a social reformer. And New Lanark would become one of the century's greatest social experiments. I was not aware of this. Yes. Now, and I'm using the term experiment because this was not done at the time. So from our perspective, it is a little bit like... I would say it's a little bit like a Big Brother type. Exp- Remember how, like, when that program started, it was to see what would happen. It's the same kind yeah. of it's the same kind of idea without the cameras. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was like it They'd was have portraits of the holes cut out the eyes. Yeah. 
They'd be like, <laughs> what's going on? But yeah, it was done to see if this system that he brought in could work and whether it was effective. So in, generally it was an experiment. So Owen wanted to improve the, quote, moral fibre of the people that lived and worked at the mills as there was an increasing belief amongst those involved in the Enlightenment, the Scottish Enlightenment, which was going on at the time, that there was a correlation between healthy, content staff and productivity. You don't I mean, see. Ground I know. What a find. <laughs> so he set out to improve the working conditions of the mills themselves and the living conditions of those in the village. So approximately two and a half thousand people lived at New Lanark, many of whom had come from the poor houses of Glasgow and Edinburgh. The housing wasn't great. It was still like families in a room, but mm-hmm. <laughs> by modern standards, not great, but probably for the Victorian yes. time was standard. Um, yeah. But these would be inspected for cleanliness, which is something okay. that Owen very much up- upheld. And he also wished to promote a sense of community. So the neighborhoods were divided into 12 and each had a spokesperson and the, these individuals would meet with them to like discuss village business and problems and stuff like that, which was v- probably not a done thing in many towns. Yeah, yeah to actually era. care about your staff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, because generally for like mill owners, once their employees went home, they had nothing to do with them. Yeah, um, profit and... Product not, being made were the yeah, only things that Profit mattered. and product over, like, persons. Mm-hmm. So, there was also a village doctor that was employed and a sickness fund was established. So, one-sixteenth of workers' wages would be paid into the fund that villagers were permitted to use if they required it. Very modern thinking. That's so good. Yeah, because, again, Owen also held the belief that health was improved by fresh air and through, like, good hygiene. He's not wrong. Yeah, <laughs> literally true. Um, he was also a staunch advocate for education, as he believed that it was something that every individual had a right to. So all children that worked in the mills, and their children were still employed in the mills, but um, they would be sure to be sent to school but no child under the age of 10 was permitted to work. That's good. That's that good. Is, that's good. So they couldn't even like loophole it because they physically weren't allowed in that mill if they were under yeah. 10 years of yeah, age. Yeah. And, and I don't know why this made me so happy, but it just did. There was also a village nursery that was established, which meant that mothers were able to leave their youngest children in the care of like village girls so they could actually go to work. And to me, I'm like... That's so nice. Yeah. I was like, that's like proper modern thinking. <laughs> it's like yeah. the working mum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In like 100%. the Victorian era. It's crazy. It's so cool. I like this Owen. Yeah. So Owen also banned corporal punishment in the school and ensured that the children were also exposed to education in both music and dancing. Very important parts of our culture. Very important. Absolutely. See, that's the thing. You wanted yeah. them to have like a really proper, diverse, well-rounded that went beyond mm-hmm. education, that went beyond just like writing and arithmetic, which, yep. I mean, most Victorian children couldn't do anyway. 
So, mm-hmm. um, because they were working in mills, etc. Uh, so yeah, he was very much all about this. And because he had working hours shortened at his mills, it meant that older children and adults could also attend the school in the evening if they wished. So they had oh, night, night classes, classes too. That's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So New Lanark still does exist. Obviously, it's not a working mill anymore, but it's, it's, it's still there. And it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2001, making it one of oh. six sites present in Scotland. And the site has been painstakingly preserved and renovated to display how life would have been for those living and working there throughout the 19th century. And it has a hotel now. I didn't know this. You can do like a little weekend break there and it looks stunning. They also have Does a it? spa. Oh, it looks great. I think we should, let's take a trip. We absolutely should. It has been years, literal years. I think I was like Same. six the last time I was at New Lanark. And it's not that far away. I, th- I was maybe nine or ten the last time I was there. But we have spoken about it quite a lot recently. We think Thea's too young for it. She won't appreciate it. But mum still wants to take her. That's fair. (laughs) For our benefit. But I was definitely young enough that I didn't actually appreciate why I was there beyond just looking at cool things. that's fair. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, But yeah, that was Scotland's Dark Satanic Mills. Nice. Thanks. That's so... I remember learning about factories when I was in primary school yep. and learning about scalp, scalping <laughs> children being scalped. And that has stuck with me my entire life. There's nothing... The, the fear of being scalped. Yeah, there's nothing more horrific than the, the thought of that happening. Like, it literally, Ooh. it gives me the shivers, the thought. But, it's just absolutely horrendous. Yeah. But yeah, like I've said on, like, whenever it was, it was a while ago now, that I'm deeply fascinated by the industrial revolution and how it happened in particular like the accounts of workers and the conditions that people because it's such an important part of our history and i like reading about it and you like seeing the change happen in history when everyone went from like farmer to shipbuilder and all that i just find it fascinating the cotton industry also was booming big time in England but a lot of people I think presume it was quite an English thing when actually yeah it, did it come was up here. it was up here as well and conditions were just as bad up here as they were down there yeah in mills it was not oh. a fun time if that was your job not a fun time the thing about the story of the little boy who mm-hmm. got decapitated in Cheshire is that I guarantee that they maybe stopped the machine for two minutes to get him out of the way to then fire it straight back on again. Absolutely. They literally will have like Ugh. stopped it, cleaned it up, mm-hmm. and then... Probably using a child. Yeah. Because they could get under the machine. Yeah. And then Ugh. back to work. But see, that's... Oh, you just... You can't... That's the thing, is that you can't... You can't get your head around that fact. The conditions that those people were working in. And Mm. the children died and people lost limbs from, like, making cotton. Just so they could... Just so people could make profit. It's it's awful. 
it's awful. But also the scary the scary thing as well is is that there's still textile industries that are using slave labor, low paid workers, poor conditions, long working hours are still operating today. Everyone thinks yeah. of it as like a Victorian issue, but actually it's still ongoing. This is still an issue. Yeah. Oh, it's just grim to think about it. It feels like a completely different world. It absolutely is. Um, it's, yeah. Now, I don't know. Do you remember as a six-year-old going round New Lanark and going on the ride I'm... and being terrified? Right. Okay. I'm so glad you said this because I couldn't find any evidence <laughs> of this ride anywhere online. And I was like, is it a fever dream? But that was a thing. No, yeah? no, no, no. It was the, it was a thing, and okay, I good. there was a certain there was it wasn't a mannequin it was literally like an animatronic, um, man probably Owen I assume maybe yeah um, and I was terrified of him <laughs> so like you'd go round and in my mind you were going round in what was like a little coal mine carriage it probably wasn't it was probably like a legitimate seat um, oh no it was like an egg. It was like an egg. Yes. Yes. The eggs just come back to me. That's what I remember. Yeah. You were sitting in an egg and you just get kind of chugged along this little ride and it was telling you the history of the mill. But there was this one animatronic man that terrified me. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So Um, it wasn't a fever dream. This happened. I'm so glad you said that because I was like, I could have sworn there was a ride there. (laughs) I could have sworn there was. (laughs) Also, 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 you were talking about education and people being able to take lessons and things. It makes me want to mention, for -hmm. those who are not from Scotland and maybe haven't actually heard this, but Scotland has just become the first country in the world to make the teaching of LGBT compulsory. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm I'm so so happy. I mean, I feel like when I was doing personal and social education in school, which was one of our compulsory yep. lessons, um, did you call it PSE, PSE as well? PSE, yep. Yeah. I do remember learning a little bit about LGBTQIA stuff. It was never called that. It was normally just LGBT yeah. because we didn't have the QIA plus yet. It was minimal. You didn't actually learn about anything beyond the fact that people existed yeah, within the it. LGBT community. Yeah, literally. That was it. But it is now compulsory to teach all of that properly. Mm-hmm. And that is very exciting. It's very exciting. Yes, yeah, so I'm just really excited that there's kids that were like me who would have struggled throughout school with what was going on in their heads without the difficulties of exams and all that kind of stuff. There's this additional internal wrestling match you're going on. And that's not to say that being an LGBT youth is harder than being a youth in general but there it's just it's an additional challenge and and for that to be minimized for any future lgbtqia plus youth Mm -hmm. is so exciting yeah i think it's gonna like the oh it's it's so important it's so important and i'm so glad that it's happening and that scotland is like leading the way that is so exciting yeah yeah, I fully agree. Yeah. It was such a good thing to see yesterday when the news broke about it. Because, yeah, so many youth are going to benefit from that. And, yeah, I'm just, I'm just so, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased because it's like a good positive yeah. change that we need. Yeah. And, yeah, 
Oh, I'm so happy. And I'm so happy that you're happy about it. Like literally your energy about it is infectious. I'm sitting here smiling. <laughs> literally. It makes, oh, it's, just... it's so lovely. Oh, I just, I, like I just, from my own personal experience, growing up, knowing from like the age of nine that I wasn't the same as other people, mm-hmm. but I didn't understand why. Yeah. And then it becomes a thing where people say to you what they think you are and are making it an insult. It's just, it's, it's hard. It's so hard. Going to school is hard anyway, but it's just, it's a horrible feeling for people to have to go through that. And it's unfortunate that there are so many people of like our age who will have experienced that. And people from, I mean, it was harder for people before us, um, but it's probably like the first massive, massive step that will make the conversations about being LGBT so much easier to have. Yeah. There'll be less bullying because it's something that's being normalized. Yep. That's the thing yeah, that I think absolutely, yeah. even as even being in the school in the two thousands, it wasn't a normal thing. So yeah. it wasn't normalized enough. Exactly. Exactly. It was so very... of course people are gonna make fun of you, but if it's normalized, there's nothing to make fun of. Yeah. It's so exciting. It's so exciting. I'm so I'm so pleased. Well yeah. done, Scottish government. Yes. For that. very very happy. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Okay. Hurry for equality. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's important. Over to me, and uh, let's just fire. Let's in. do it. So. The sound of an ice cream van tinkling its way around your town makes the child and all of us want to jump to our feet, rush to find a pair of shoes and some loose change to get a 99, before going outside and realising the van has already left. That happened to me far too many times. It's very upsetting when that happens. I also fully know what you're going to be talking about now. (laughs) Yes! Surprise! But back in 1980s Scotland, it was safer to skip the unnecessary dairy. Otherwise, you might get caught up in the dreaded Glasgow ice cream wars. Boo, 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 boo. Wasn't a great time. No, no, no. Back in the day, being an ice cream van vendor was a very lucrative job with owners expecting to make as much as £200 in profit per week from doing their rounds, which is close to £650 profit today, per week. That's pretty good, pretty good. With such a decent profit margin, owners of vans would naturally become very territorial and would do all that they could to stop newcomers from stealing their turf through any means possible. Some vans were legitimate businesses, but many more were fronts for organised crime. Mobile ice cream businesses have a surprisingly long history of illegal activity, hiding in plain sight. Even as recently as 2013, police arrested an ice cream man in New York for using his business as a front to sell painkillers and cocaine. That's, 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 yeah, you don't want a sprinkling of cocaine on your ice cream though. You don't. It's powdery. Yeah, nobody wants that. It gives you a chalky sensation. You don't want that. (laughs) (laughs) You want it to be nice and smooth. (laughs) This kind of criminal activity often often results in arrest, but the illegal activities of ice cream men in Glasgow were far more extreme, involving whole neighbourhoods in territorial gang battles, 
and this era thenceforth was known as the Glasgow Ice Cream Wars. The site of these battles was the Glasgow housing schemes, which were mostly built as a replacement for the old tenement housing of the 1960s. Excuse me. The schemes were made for families with low income, and the amount of money going into the schemes died off once people moved in. They were built on the outskirts of the city and often lacked access to basic shops and grocery stores. Ice cream van businesses had been well established in the area for decades, so to make up for the lack of shops, vans essentially became travelling stores to supply the schemes with much needed groceries, toilet paper and other things that people sorely needed but couldn't get nearby. Though the business would still usually focus on ice cream. Though what started off as an excellent idea that helped support a community in need, it eventually took a turn. And these ice cream vans would often branch out to sell drugs, stolen goods, all the while to the joyful tune of Whistle While You Work, <laughs> which is the tune we had in our village. <laughs> that was the what tune we knew when the ice cream man here? was coming. I want to say that ours is the, the Benny Hill theme round here. I think it is. I think it is, yeah. <laughs> ice cream. Cute. <laughs> No, ours was whistle while you oh. work. Um, I think we had a, we had a couple. We also had a really really small van, which was essentially like a golf cart. <gasps> it was really small, and it was selling for a Musselboro based ice cream shop called Lucas. And it is one of the few ice creams that I actually like because I don't actually really like ice cream oh. all that much. I like Mackey's and I like Lucas. Oh. Um, but dairy makes me feel ill, so can I avoid it? But the, the Lucas vanilla is the best vanilla in the world. So we had a Lucas van and it was essentially a golf cart. And it didn't have any music. He would just toot his horn. Yeah, I miss, hear, I miss hearing the ice cream van. We don't hear it anymore. I think we have it sometimes during the summer still. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we also have a fish van. <laughs> So nice. the man comes round in the van selling fish. Yeah, That's woo. less exciting than an ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They play as the... I wish that's not actually true. I wish that's what he did. so good if it did. Hopefully I didn't sing that for too long because copyright. Okay. So these van companies declared claims over the different areas, as I say... And if you tried to sell ice cream or anything else in an area that you didn't have the, quote, rights to, you would face violence. Vans were shadowed, drivers intimidated, and customers terrorised amid attacks with baseball bats and knives, and eventually guns. In an episode of the BBC investigative series Trial and Error, excellent name of a TV show. Never seen never it. Seen, it. I've it never excellent. heard of it. <laughs> It's probably from the 90s or something. We're too young. Which uh, this looked into a court case related to the ice cream wars and a convicted van smasher recalls that ice cream van gangs used rocks, knives, axes, anything to defend their mobile drugs and treat vans. God. Even in a summer job as a server, you would be in danger. In 1979, two brothers attacked a rival van with bricks and planks of wood. A mob broke out, causing what the Glasgow Herald described as, quote, mafia-style warfare. 
1986, one ice cream van was robbed by two young men with a plastic bag with two revolvers in it. They planned to damage ice cream vans in Castle Milk, which is a district in Glasgow. And on September 9th, 1989, an 18-year-old was shot in the shoulder and permanently disabled by a 23-year-old ice cream gang member who felt so guilty he later took his own life because of the incident. Oh my god. Yeah. So even those that were kind of trapped within this uh-huh. gang war, they they were probably just it was this it was a situational thing mm-hmm. that they found themselves within it um kind of probably unintentionally or against their will potentially Mm. this frozen treat related violence came at a time when scotland was already embroiled in the unprecedented drug crisis that spawned what is now not so fondly nicknamed the train spotting generation which is obviously a reference to train spotting the the film and book not the pastime oh yeah of course (laughs) Of course, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the the pastime, dull. The film, thrilling. The book, never read no, it, but I'm sure yep. very similar to the film. <laughs> As things always do before they get any better, the battles got worse and worse. And before long, the turf wars resulted in a murder investigation. One night in December 1984, 18-year-old Andrew... Uh, Andrew? Andrew Fatboy Doyle beautiful nickname was taking his normal route through the neighborhood while stopped at one of his usual spots a car pulled up alongside his van and opened fire i read one place that it was a shotgun that was used but i'm not sure if that is the Mm -hmm. case doyle was successful in his escape however but it wouldn't take long for his luck to run out a driver for the marchetti firm Doyle had ignored intimidation tactics that had been growing more violent. He point-blank refused to sell drugs on his rounds, nor was he willing to surrender his patch, and his rivals weren't willing to stop at shooting in their attempts to scare him out of the game. The intimidation of Fatboy culminated... (laughs) Why did I keep that in? The culmination... the, The intimidation of Andrew, far more respectful, culminated in April of 1984, when a, quote, frightener intended to scare him out of the neighbourhood, intending to scare him out of the neighbourhood went wrong. I feel like the grammar of that sentence isn't right, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Just weeks after his car was hailed hailed on with bullets, the violence came to a head when his family's top floor flat went up in flames, following someone petrol bobbing the stairwell. Assuming the home contained just... Andrew and his family, the arsonist set the house ablaze in the early hours of the morning. But unfortunately, the Doyle family had guests staying with them, which doubled the expected occupancy. Out of the nine sleeping inside, only three survived. Oh my god. This was a mass murder that shook the nation and claimed the lives of six members of the hard-working, honest and most importantly innocent Doyle family. Those killed were Dad James, 53, Son James Jr., 23, Andrew, who was 18, Anthony, who was 14, and daughter Christina Helleran, who was 25, and also Christina's infant son Mark, who was 18 months old, oh, died in the fire. No. 
The police and public response to these murders were frantic and the ice cream wars went on to become central to one of Scotland's most notorious miscarriages of justice. Desperate to make a conviction, police coordinated a plea bargain with jailed ice cream van robber John Love, who implicated ice cream van owners Thomas T.C. Campbell and Joe Steele as the culprits. When arresting Campbell and Steele as suspects, the police claimed to hear each man make separate incriminating statements referencing the crime. Both Campbell and Steele maintained their innocence, but the utterances were considered evidence enough to sentence them both to prison for a minimum of 20 years each. Whilst incarcerated, Campbell went on several hunger strikes and also refused to cut his hair. Personally, I don't see that as a big deal. <laughs> I've refused to cut my hair for it since I was 14. And while Steele, uh, while Steele escaped three times to protest the conviction with public stunts. I know, very impressive. That's, How did you manage that? It, yeah, exactly. It, should, it shouldn't be impressive because it shouldn't have happened, but you've got to give him props for his attendance. <laughs> Absolutely. Three times. Uh, this include supergluing his body to the outer gates of Buckingham Palace in 1993. Wow. So he escaped prison, went down to London, went up to Beg Lizzie's house and glued himself. That must have taken so much super glue though. Oh yes. And also, I wonder how he got off it. That's also a good point. I wonder point. how much skin he lost. That's also a good point. <laughs> In 1992, Love, who was the guy who originally said that it was TC and Mr. Steele. Yes. He confessed that his original statements to the police were invented. They were not true. This and a series of appeals led to a re-examination of the case, re-examination of the case in 2001, and Campbell and Steele were finally set free in 2004. The original arsonists were never found. It also is highly likely that the comments reportedly overheard by the police from Campbell and Steele were also fabrications to ensure a guilty verdict. A decade after getting out of prison, Campbell told a trial and error journalist that he had regrets about the bizarre violence of the ice cream gang wars. He said, quote, A lot of my friends were killed. I was near to death on a few occasions myself. I've been caught with axes, I've been caught with swords, open razors, every conceivable weapon, meat cleavers, and it was all for nothing, no gain, nothing to it, just absolute madness. The ice cream wars continued for more years uh, in the housing schemes with minor acts of revenge throughout the 1980s. Eventually, though, the ice cream van business stopped being as lucrative in Glasgow thanks to the availability of ice cream in the newer corner stores. Today, you don't think of corner stores as being a relatively recent like, thing. thing. Yeah, it's kind of strange. <laughs> Today, the mobile ice cream business is in serious decline, with just a few thousand ice cream trucks left in the UK as a whole. Many housing schemes have banned the once ubiquitous uh, chiming vans, but this is largely due, due to concerns about childhood obesity and noise pollution, not ice cream men attacking each other. Yes. People who remember the Glasgow ice cream wars likely view this ban with relief. And also all of the lactose intolerant people are probably like, whew, no more temptation. Exactly. 
In 2010, it was widely reported that gangland enforcer Gary Moore had confessed to the killings shortly before his death. But two years later, his widow told the press he was simply covering for his cousin, Gordon Ness. Mr. Steele scoffed at claims that his friend Gary Moore confessed. He said, Gary's no angel, but he never admitted to anyone that he... he oh God, the grammar of this upsets me, but I'm going to say it. Gary's no angel, but he never admitted to anyone he'd done the Doyle family. He never admitted to bleep all in his life. Mm-hmm. McGraw ordered it and asked the people... I know who it is and I'll go to my grave with it. The people who done it have got to look in the mirrors. Oh, that jars with me, the grammar. <laughs> <laughs> so in this quote, he was also claiming that Glasgow crime lord Tam McGraw, also known as the licensee, was responsible for ordering the hit on the family. So he was like, he asked the people to do it and uh, somebody then went on to do it. And he said that, he said that in the press. Yes. It's quite a risky thing to accuse in the press. Brave. What a brave boy. He's made of steel. <laughs> He's called steel. Okay. So Thomas T.C. Campbell was discovered dead in his Danunun... Oh, okay. His Danun secluded cottage. <laughs> Woo. Wow. Uh, in June 2019 after he failed to reply to a Father's Day message from his daughter, Shannon. He was discovered by his ex-wife. Mm. Um, and it's very sad. Paying tribute to Mr. Campbell, his lawyer, um, Amer Anwar, I think is how it's pronounced, I think. He said, quote, he was a giant of a man who, despite being imprisoned, refused to give up, fighting the judiciary and a corrupt police force. For Tommy, his struggle was so much more than just about him. It was about the pursuit for justice for the Doyle family. I hope now that TC is truly free and can be at peace. What makes me sad is that this man who had his life taken from him never received the recognition and apology that he deserved. And that is the story of the Glasgow Ice Cream Wars and the miscarriage of justice of Campbell and Steele. See, okay, I knew that the the ice cream wars were a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't know like all the ins and outs, but I didn't know that the police had kind of messed up the investigation. They did. I didn't know that. They did. That there was a miscarriage of justice involved. Yeah, no, that's that was a new element to me as well. I knew about the wars, and I knew, I think I knew about the Doyle family. I don't think I realised so many mm-hmm. people were killed. Like there was six people. Mm-hmm. There's also a photo out there of the family after the fire. Not the family after the fire, but a couple of people after the fire. And there's a fireman holding the baby who had just, who went on to die. But also, Mm -hmm. I think Andrew himself, the one who was kind of central to it, was sitting Mm -hmm. in this photo post-fire. So I think he didn't die in the fire, but died as a result of the fire just after. Oh, okay, yeah. Because I was confused for a minute. I was looking at this photo and I was like, he died in the fire. How's he sitting there? But I think he had, he must have smoke inhalation like or something killed him. Of, exactly. Yeah. Um, but very sad. I didn't realize there was an 18 month old involved. Um, no, me neither. It's very sad. But uh, yeah, the miscarriage of justice thing, they were in prison for 20 years. 
So they were sentenced to 20 years time. and were in prison for 20 years and yeah. were only released because they discovered this miscarriage of justice, which I think is mm-hmm. awful because they did serve their full sentence mm-hmm. or their full minimum sentence. Yeah. yeah. Not good. Not good. There's less ice cream fans to be fighting over. This um, is true. This is turf. true. I haven't seen one in Glasgow before, I don't think. But back home we have them still. There's the little fancy one that sits outside Botanic Gardens. That's true. This is true. The um, little one that looks like a little old-fashioned 1910s car. Yeah, that's cute. Because it's the West End and of course it does. Yeah, they have to make things a bit bougie. <laughs> um, although saying that, I was going to say as well, I don't really... You don't hear about gun crime all that much in Glasgow. Or not Glasgow, in Scotland. Because... Guns are not a thing in Scotland, really. You stood, you do still get like the the occasional the occasional shooting, but I mean, guns aren't necessarily available to like your average human on the street. No, if you get true. what I mean, it's true. It's a very, very um, dark alley business, I think. Yes, exactly. They decided because that's a logical thing to do. If a man murders lots of children with a gun, you go maybe let's maybe not let's have not that not happen that. again. There, I think the only shooting I've actually heard of since I moved to Glasgow literally happened at the top of my road about three <laughs> about three years ago. Lovely. Yeah, but I think that was Lovely. a ga- that was a gang thing or a drug thing. I think. Yeah, that that yeah. that would check out. Yes, but yeah, Anyways. but yeah, I suppose again you say the lack of ice cream vans is probably helpful to the lactose intolerant of the city because. Sometimes you just want an ice cream. It's true. Sometimes you just want that sugar hit. And they always give you the real... Oh, my God. Speaking of ice cream fan, right? This just shows you how much lockdown messed with my brain last year. So, my mother and I went down to... uh, Went for a wee visit to Pollock Park. Mm -hmm. And... (laughs) We were walking, like, up towards, like, Pollock House. And there's all these kids walking about with like little tubs of ice cream. And we're like, what is going on here? What is, like, what's happening? And as we like came through the trees, there was an ice cream van sitting in front of the house. And I swear to God, we both lost our minds like a <laughs> pair of children because there was an ice cream van. <laughs> it's just such like a nostalgic thing. It's such, and he had that, you know, that really nice, um, raspberry sauce oh, like yes. the really sweet oh my god it was so good i nearly cried over an ice cream but to be fair <laughs> i had been in the house for about six months <laughs> lockdown was probably a good way of getting a resurgence back into the ice cream industry it's so true actually but yeah, yeah that was very funny that day and he did come back a few other times which was very exciting As always, please pop along to our Instagram and our Facebook. Give us likes and follows there. We post all of our corresponding photos up there every week and it just gives you a nice little visual to go along with the story. Along with our Magic Hat Mondays where you can give your responses to our questions. Our We Love a Link Wednesdays where we join links between different stories that we've told. And of course, Fun Fact Friday where you will learn some kind of fun Scottish fact. If you happen to have a question for the magical hat, if you either email us or messages it over, it will be written down 
on a little sheet of paper, fold it up and go straight into the hat where it may feature on future episodes. Also, if you happen to own an Apple device, if you could head on over to that little purple logo of Apple Podcasts and leave us a little review, it would be much appreciated and helps us in the massive podcast algorithm of the world. And thank you for listening to A Wee Bit Gothic. Was that gothic? A wee bit.